October, I guess, of last year down at Key Biscayne, we had the immense experience of listening to the couple who are going to be with us this evening. And uh, I forgot to ask which one of them wanted to go first. Wayne. My name is Wayne, and I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. Hi. Hi, everybody. I never thought in a million years that I'd be standing up in front of you and talking tonight about what it was like in a general way, what happened, and what it's like now. And I certainly thought for a long period of time that uh, my relationship with my wife Jackie was ended and that she would not want much more to do with me because I was a bad sort too, Joe. Early in our recovery, when I got back from treatment in Mississippi, we were watching a uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers picture, and I remember thinking to myself, boy, that guy's got all the right moves. And I remember remarking to Jackie, you know, that Fred Astaire, he's got all the right moves. And she looked at me and she says, yep, Fred Astaire's got all the right moves. And I remember talking about it again, uh, oh, maybe six months into recovery, and I said, you know, that, that Fred Astaire, he's got all the right moves. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, but Ginger Rogers has all the right moves too. And I remember again about a year into recovery saying the same thing, and that guy's got all the right moves. And she said, yeah, Ginger Rogers got all the right moves too. Backwards. A couple of years into recovery, we saw them again on television. I said, boy, that Fred Astaire, he's got all the right moves. Of course, I should have known by then she was black belt. She says, yep, Ginger Rogers has all the right moves too, backwards on three-inch heels. <laughs> I didn't realize that I was pushing so hard to get Jackie involved in Al-Anon, which I did do when I came back from long-term therapy to have her join the Sisters of Perpetual Revenge, but that's what happened. <laughs> I came up in a small town in central Florida. The name was Haines City, and I thought everything was just right in Haines City. Uh, everything I wanted was in Haines City. My parents were well-to-do. I didn't know anything about alcoholism or drug addiction in my early years. There was none that I knew of in my family except for a distant uncle. So as in, in terms of looking back, in terms of thinking about genetics or biochemistry, I think of myself perhaps as a mutant. <laughs> I think of my brother as a mutant too, since he's in the program. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's not here, so I can't say too much about him. But I did at the Florida meeting. He was there. Haines City was great. I. Uh, I had a wonderful childhood, no problems really to speak of. We moved from Haines City when I was 13 to Jacksonville, a larger town, and I became a small fish in a big pond. Really uh, learned how to strive and to work hard and do the things that I needed to do to grow up and to fit into a large high school with 3,000 students versus the one in Haines City with 200 students. And, I couldn't play football, I was too small, so uh, I joined the golf team and learned how to play golf. 
and we won the state championship in golf. Uh, it was great uh, being there in Florida. And I had no knowledge of drug. In fact, the only drug or alcohol knowledge that I had was, was a cigar I smoked when I was a senior in high school. I remember turning green and puking, and that was it. That was my only drug throughout my early career. So I was way behind many that I've heard in the program. But when I went to New Orleans to college, the fraternity rush week was in full bloom, and I joined right in, and I learned how to drink. The first night I drank, I blacked out. Woke up the next morning, didn't know how I'd gotten back to my dorm room, and I was just sick as a dog. But in the spirit of the insanity mentioned in the second step, I went right back to it that night, and throughout the rush week, I stayed drunk. And for much of the first year in college, I did a lot of heavy drinking, and I remember that my father wrote me a letter to quit writing home about how I was always soused. In New Orleans, uh, when cram time came for exams, I became familiar with amphetamines. But I think that the, the drug history that I'm giving you now is typical for the student in those early 60s, uh, the uh, uh, mid-50s, late-50s, when really th that was it. Alcohol or, or uppers uh, for studying, that was the only drug experience, really. Uh, but I did drink to excess in those early years, and... Uh, in my drinking career when I did drink. It was always to excess. In fact, I did everything to excess in those early years, and that was part of my history. Um, I was accepted to medical school in Miami, and uh, there I found something called Milltown. This was in the late uh, 50s, and that was the only tranquilizer that I had heard of at that time. Librium came out, and I became familiar with those and I, looking through some old letters the other day uh, in an old file of mine, I found a letter from my mother to my first wife, and she said, what in the world's uh, this young man, my son, doing, taking all these pills, this mill town, and uh, carrying on with pills for? What's the matter with him? And I found that letter, and I had forgotten about it. Medical school was filled with much study time for me. I was not a good student, and I had to sp occupy myself fully with my studies, and I did. Um, I did fairly well. I got in uh, to research. I was in an automobile accident while drunk in my freshman year. I was knocked out of medical school for a year, got into research, and found that that was really my cup of tea. I could do research. Published a paper as a medical student in the cardiology literature and went to the Cleveland Clinic for my internship. No time for drugs uh, other than the occasional binge drink on a weekend. Uh, an occasional uh, episode with tranquilizers. The tendency was there. In Cleveland, uh, I began to experiment around with another drug, namely extramarital sex. And I was very busy in Cleveland. Those three years I was there, I, I really didn't uh, do very much in the way of drinking or, or uh, drugging. I was accepted in the military, and Vietnam was cranking up, and they sent me uh, to Dallas, Texas for my station. I was in the public health service and classified as a yellow beret instead of a green beret. And there I worked in the heart disease control program and found really my first drug of choice, which was a red jelly pill called Placidil. And I hear an amen in the front here. That's good. I'm glad to hear an amen because I did a lot of Placidil, and I did so much Placidil that I knew I had become addicted to it. And that was in about six weeks of using. 
And I heard that the chief of psychiatry at Harvard was moving to Dallas and retiring, and I decided I was going to go see him and get off this Placidil stuff and find out what in the hell was the matter with me. I did. And he, he decided that my diagnosis was Valium deficiency, and he put me on Valium. In retrospect, I think he was probably trying to detox me, but that's what, what he did. And after about six months of this detox, I decided I'd better get rid of him and the pills, and I did, and I stopped through willpower. But I missed it. I, I look back, and I missed it. At that time, I missed it. And my military career ended. I was, uh, at this point in time, becoming very successful in the cardiovascular research field. I published 16 papers in two years in major cardiology journals and was finding myself, went to Emory uh, for a cardiology fellowship, did very well there, but I found another drug. I was introduced to another drug, and this drug was marijuana. And I loved marijuana. I became a pothead practically overnight. I was working very hard, and it was hard to work and do marijuana at the same time, so I had to really do the weekends. But as a fellow in cardiology, I didn't have that much night call, so I was able to do that. And I worked in pot and some occasional pills and alcohol uh, and got essentially a blank check to go back to Cleveland where I became a staff man at the Cleveland Clinic and opened up the cardiac function laboratory. Worked hard, became a workaholic as another addiction as I look back and divorced. My first wife said I was crazy. We had a little girl said I was crazy for leaving. And I was, but I didn't recognize her. She was crazy. I took her inventory. She was a lawyer. It's always easy to take the inventory of a lawyer if you're, from my standpoint, anyway. But I, I found something happening in Cleveland. My memory was going. I was frequently involved, and in, I was involved in the teaching program cardiology, and I was often giving grand rounds in medicine, three or four hundred doctors. And I found my memory was going, and I was doing the schedule for conferences. We were having seven conferences in cardiology a week at that time. It was a very busy service. 25 casts, just incredible, it was a factory. And uh, I found that I couldn't do it. I just, my memory was failing. So I began to sign other people to do the work. And all I did was scheduling. And I would sit in my office and look at the oak tree grow and developed progressive unhappiness. And I decided what I needed to do was get married again, so I did, very quickly. And it was a big mistake. And so I divorced again. I thought it was all these women that were my problem. And then I thought it was my hours. And then I thought it was Cleveland, Ohio. Well, that was easy to rationalize. <laughs> so I, I heard about an offer down in Miami, Florida. Seven, seven friends, really, three or four of them I'd been schoolmates with, wanted somebody to join their partnership. And not knowing, really, that I was defective, called me to find a referral. And I and another one of my fellows went down to join them. I'm getting into what really classifies now as my bottom because I could not stop using drugs. I met Jackie then. She uh, came and talked to me in my office about something in the medical field. She was in the medical field. She's a nurse. And I fell for her right away. Took her out to dinner and second day to ask her to marry me. I think she accepted, as I recall it. We were both pretty sick. <laughs> but I was terrorized. If the telephone would ring, I knew it was for me, and I knew I was inadequate to whatever that telephone call was for. 
the simplest thing, a cold, a URI, I couldn't handle it. Or even if I did, I didn't think I could handle it right, and I was always questioning myself. So I didn't want telephone calls. I didn't want patients. My hours were like from 9 to 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> or if I decided to put in a big day, it'd maybe be from 11 to 1 o'clock. And then I'd call up Jackie to come hold me in the office while I had the shakes. And it was really horrible. It's funny looking back and talking to you. This is the truth. An hour a day was a big day for me, and I would spend the rest of the time knocking myself out and anesthetizing myself with either the Placidil or the Downers and the marijuana. And if I, I, I ran out of marijuana, uh, I'd do more Downers to anesthetize myself, missing the drug of choice. Finally, I was fired by these friends and partners for using on the job. My tolerance was minimal. I, I remember I got drunk on one drink of alcohol toward the end of my drinking career, which was considerably before the end of my drugging career. If I needed a lift, I became a kleptomaniac. I was very depressed, and I'd go out and lift something. Stores, gasoline, I'd drive into a gas station, drive out with gas, and I'd pay for it. The excitement of the lift would be the lift. So you can see that I was pretty powerless, and I saw that I was powerless, but I didn't have any idea that, I, that this powerless concept was a disease concept. And finally, I was caught as a kleptomaniac. And I walked into the house, and Jackie was there, and she, how was your day? Oh, fine. She knew I'd been caught. Booked. Hospital found out, barred me from going in the front door or the back door. So I was out of a job, I was out of a, being a physician, I was out of a marriage that I really did want to be very much a part of, and terrorized, and the cops were after me. On that basis, when Jackie said, you're out of here, I said, you mean to a drug treatment program. So I was willing only in the sense that I was being driven to the drug treatment program. So I went to see Dr. Dolores Morgan, who ran the treatment program at South Miami Hospital. Not as a voluntary thing, but as an escape from all these problems. And she held her hand out and she said, come in, we can help you. And I thought that woman was the warmest woman that I had ever seen in my life to do that to a person so filled with shame and guilt as I, and in so much trouble as I, and so miserable as I, and depressed. So I said I would come in in a few days, thinking to myself, after the stay, she's used up, which I did. And I went in on a Tuesday morning, and by Tuesday night they told me I was going away to long-term therapy. And I remember one of the doctors who was a good friend of mine who worked with Dr. Morgan, Dr. John Eustace, was coming down the hall that Wednesday morning, and I saw him, and I thought, I'm going to get that SOB and tell him I'm not going away to long-term and that there's something wrong with them, not me. And he took me in this little office, and he sat there, and he drew the Jelinek chart for me, and he explained to me about this bottom and the disease concept. And I understood a little bit about what he was talking about. But then Dr. Morgan, who's kind of a tough bird, walked in, and she looked at me. She said, if you don't go away, we're going to pull your license. Now, I understood that. <laughs> it took about three weeks of 
detox before they let me out of the hospital to go to an AA meeting. That's how bad I was. I mean, I was walking around cross-eyed. Coming off these downers, I would sleep maybe an hour at night. I was totally wired. And it was awful. I felt like my skin was crawling as I think back. Uh, just like total massive amphetamine dose without any amphetamines coming off the downers. And the detox was rough, and finally they let me out of the hospital and sent me away to Mississippi. Went to Mississippi on uh, Father's Day. No, I went to Mississippi on my birthday. It was June 16th. Father's Day was a week later, or several days later. Arrived in Hattiesburg, and Dr. Doyle Smith was there, the director of the program. I went in to see him to interview. And now about two minutes into the interview, he turned around to his counselor and said, Now, this fellow's not leaving Mississippi until he's done four and five. I thought to myself, Damn, I didn't bring any winter clothes. But I went up to this place called COPAC, Caduceus Outpatient Addiction Center, and began to understand what I was going to have to do was get into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I committed to something that had been written in my little aftercare plan at South Miami Hospital called 90 Meetings in 90 Days. I decided I was going to do 90 meetings of AA or NA in 90 days. And I also committed to doing the steps. And they gave me a little first step workbook, uh, which I now know is from Hazelden, and I did that little workbook. It took me about 20 pages of writing to write that all down, my powerlessness and unmanageability and the acceptance versus the admittance, getting at peace with the fact that I had a disease. wasn't so bad. And then further into that foundation, realizing that the insanity was is that I thought I could use successfully over and over again or use with a good result rather than a bad result. That was my insanity. And coming to believe that there was a power, sitting down and reading the 23rd Psalm, getting in touch with the word shepherd, coming to believe that meetings, talking with people, identification, sharing, would be of help to me. That was a real process. And the drug was beginning to go away a little bit. The mood swings were not quite as wide, and maybe I'd sleep two or three hours at night. And that was, for me, the grace of God to be able to sleep that long without a pill or a drug or a drink. And I remember one day, I, the room at Copac was, there was a dumpster right outside the room with the flies and all that, and it's pretty awful. And I remember going into group therapy and just bitching like hell about the setup there and the people there and the counselor looked at me and she said you think you're God me I think I'm God you think you're God and I remember the tears welling up sure enough I began to identify with what you that confrontation that I thought the world revolved around me as an axis instead of another axis had to get in touch with that begin to feel about it it's not something I've perfected by any stretch, but at least I began to recognize that there might be some other way than my way. And as I began to lighten up a little bit, the counselors uh, told me one day that they wanted me to start writing my fourth step, which for me was the ticket to going home. I thought I'd gotten an A in treatment. They allowed me to write my fourth step, and that means I'm going to do my fifth step, and then he's going to let me go back to Florida. And so I started writing. But the thing about it was that when I would write, 
all this stuff would come out that I'm telling you about and the details and it was awful and I'd get these psychosomatic uh, headaches and the gut pain and the sweats and I could only do it for an hour or two so it really took me a month to write all this damn stuff down. And then one day they said you can go down to Hattiesburg to something called Mirror where you begin to look at people coming in and uh, work with newcomers and go to a place called Laurel, Mississippi and work with Skid Row drunks who lost everything. Not like you. You didn't lose everything. These people lost everything. And I found a doctor that had nine relapses at, at Laurel, Mississippi. And he'd sat and talked to me one day about what it was like not to take the first step. And I looked back at the first step again, made damn sure I knew what he was talking about, not what I was thinking about. So I got in touch with some of these things. And after I'd finished writing all this stuff down, uh, one day, Dr. Smith looked at me and said, schedule yourself an appointment now to do the fifth step. And I went to this priest in, ha in uh, Jackson. I went to a priest because I thought he'd be an expert in confession. And I went thinking, I'm going to need at least two days of this man's time to talk to him. And I called up there. I remember I called this parish. I said, listen, can I stay overnight if I have to keep going? <laughs> and... <laughs> Great lady answered the telephone. She said, absolutely. If you need to stay overnight, you can stay overnight. What a relief to know that I could stay overnight. I got there very early. The priest was doing his uh, vows early in the morning there. It wasn't time for the appointment. But I walked in, and he was in full regalia. I didn't really know what that looked like. But there he was. I said, I'm here to do my fifth step. I said, the office is over there in another building. So I went over and waited for him. He came in. Wonderful man. Never forget him. Father Bill. And we started, and I guess it was about 8.30 in the morning we started, and we didn't get done until 3.30 in the afternoon. And I remember this little Jewish boy, me, and that Catholic priest hugging and crying, and him looking at me, having ex explained to me a few things like procrastination is fear. And that we're all drug addicts and alcoholics. He said that to me, including himself, even though he had not been of that disease. He had a broad sense of what it was that was wrong with me. And I remember saying to him over and over again in that fifth step what my real disease was, which was two words, my way. That was my disease as I saw it when I did the fifth step. If it wasn't my way, I wasn't happy with it. And if I wasn't happy with it, I'd drug over it or drink over it. And that developed the mental obsession and compulsion with drugs and alcohol and all the physical manifestations, mainly the craving. But that the spiritual part of it for me was the self-centeredness, the my way. So I went back to Hattiesburg in the car. I was, I really did begin to have that spiritual feeling in this fifth step experience. And I went back to Hattiesburg and did exactly what it says on page 70, uh, sorry, page 83. No, page 75, sorry. Page 75 in the big book. It says, We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know Him better, having done this fifth step. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. I took the book down and reviewed some of the key items in the book, including the 12th step. I reviewed the first step, which for me is in that Silkworth letter where he says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That was me, all right. 
and drugs. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, which I did over and over, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seemed the only normal one, and that was certainly my case. I felt I was normal. Didn't know anything about this disease. They are restless, irritable, and discontent. And I, no matter what city, how much money, what woman I was a part of, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Aggravated me that other people could use successfully and not me. Repeat it over and over unless the person can experience an entire psychic change. So that's what it told me I had to do. Have a psychic change and that the steps were going to be the way I was going to do it. What about this word insanity in the second step? This was part of this review. Page 30 tells me what the insanity is. The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And that's my insanity that I'm going to use successfully. Well, how about willpower for stopping all this? It tells me right on page 34. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, the utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And boy, did I want to not use, but I couldn't not use. So what kind of power would I have to have to get rid of this problem? And it says that's what this book is about on page 45, the lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book's about. So I took the book off the shelf. I looked at these things. And then I kind of went to page 55 and found out where the power was. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. We found the capital letters, great reality, deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. So God had to be within me. I had to search for the cure in me, just like I had to look at the cause. And self is the root of the problem. And it says so on page 62. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear. And boy, did I know fear. So I had gone back to Hattiesburg, and Dr. Smith said I could go back to Florida and go home. So the next morning I got in my car and I went home, thinking that I had a fairly decent start. I went through Jacksonville where my parents lived and I took my mother to her first AA meeting. And She stood up at the first AA meeting and she said, I'm glad to be here because I know my son belongs here. And she sat down. She knew that I was, there was something wrong with her son. All these women, all these cities, all these problems. Not the way he was raised. And that Alcoholics Anonymous is going to be a solution for him. So I got back to Miami, and Jackie was waiting for me. I was delighted. I, was, I still am honored that this woman stayed through all this terror that I put her through. Degradation, shame, and guilt. But she was there, and she had a rose in her hand and handed it to me when I came in to, to Miami. 
And I was trying to follow the recipe, and it told me exactly what to do on page 83. It says we ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. And I did. I sat down with the children and Jackie. It took me three hours. They were white-faced listening to my story. I tried to leave out some of the gory details, but they, it was awful. But I knew I had to do it. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, and kindliness, and not to be too much with the spirituality. They'll see it if it's for real. And it goes on to describe how to act. And I, it took me about a week before I finally got in touch with the sponsor. I had been in touch with John B., and John B. had given me the name of Phil Kane who was retired, living in Miami, and a member of the fellowship. He's since passed away. And I called up Phil, and Phil had had a laryngectomy. I hardly understood him. And he tested me right off the bat. He said he wanted me to go see this man in the hospital that was visiting and had coronary bypass surgery, and wouldn't somebody in my group go see this man at the hospital? And I was thinking, I said, what group? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> and I finally decided he wanted me to do this, so I hung up the phone, called the hospital. There was no such person in the hospital. So I called him back and said that I'd called. There was no such person. He said, now you can come over to my house. So I was serious. And I sat down with him that night, and he said he was dying from metastatic carcinoma of the colon, gone to his ribs and his lungs. And he didn't know if I wanted him to be my sponsor under those circumstances, and he wanted me to think about it. I called him back the next day, and I did. I said, I want you to be my sponsor. He said, I'm your sponsor. So he sponsored me for a year. It was fantastic. Great man, Phil King. First thing he told me to do is make a list of all the things I needed to do and sit down and talk to Jackie about him. She had managed my life, my office, my financial affairs, what little bit of practice I had, and start working with her because she could help me. And he would help me. And they did. Those people helped me. And I finished the 90 meetings in 90 days. And I remember going to him one day and saying, well, it's time. Let's do six and seven. Now, I did one through five. Let's do six and seven. And he said, that's good. That's for life. For life. And I have been doing six and seven daily. I say the seven-step prayer, just the way it is in the big book. My creator, I'm now willing you should have all of me, the good and the bad, and there's plenty. Pray now remove from me every single defect of character which now stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellow man. Puts me on a completely different plane than I ever operated on in my whole life. Forty-five years, didn't know what that was all about. Began to try to help somebody else instead of me. See how that worked. And it worked. So why not keep doing it? And one day I started talking to him about eight. He says, yeah, let's, let's do some eight. And I wrote a letter to those wives. And I wrote a letter to my former chief up at the clinic. And he wrote me back the next day. I got it in the mail, like airmail, extra express, whatever. Dear Wayne, your letter came today, and I hasten to answer what courage it required and how I admire you. Being an old Calvinist, I believe in the depravity of man and the grace of God. Fortunately, when we admit our shortcomings and ask forgiveness, the slate is wiped clean. You are a strong man, and I have confidence in your ability to control your destiny with the help of God and your wife. We shall pray with and for you in the sure and certain knowledge that you have triumphed. goes on to say, you're right in believing I was disappointed when you left, the way you performed. 
But he understood it, and he was glad I was making it back. Wrote another letter to the fellow who ran the coronary arteriography unit, started it all up there. There's a reason I went there. Got a letter back from his wife. Dear Dr. Siegel, perhaps by now you have become aware of Mason's death on August 29th, the date of the postmark on your letter to him. When I started to read your letter, I realized what it was. I have attended Al-Anon meetings for several years, and I want to assure you that your letter has been destroyed as you requested. I'm Mason's original wife, and we were remarried a couple of years ago, so I was able to care for him during his illness. His wish to be fulfilled to die at home without pain at peace. Our four children were here, and he felt love. Good luck to you. Sincerely. What about all those stores I robbed? Phil says, we're going to pay them back with interest. I said, with interest? He says, with interest. And he said, you're going to do it anonymously. Here's the letter. Dear owner manager, the enclosed money order is an anonymous payment plus interest for merchandise I shoplifted prior to the day I entered treatment for drug addiction and alcoholism in May 1984. Since that time, I've been an active member of AA and NA. The recovery program of AA and NA includes restitution or making amends to clear away the mistakes of the past. It is in this spirit the enclosed money is paid to you. The merchandise I took illegally was stolen as a result of the insanity of mind-altering chemicals. I am sorry. A gratefully recovering addict. Cost me over $2,000, best $2,000 I ever spent in my whole life. I wrote the daughter, the strange daughter in Cleveland. Thought I'd never hear from her again. I'd had her adopted away. About two years into recovery, and they told me this at the medical professional meeting in Sarasota, the first one I went to in Florida. That I was going to hear from her. The telephone's going to ring, they said. Sure enough, two years into recovery, telephone rang. Other end, this is your daughter, Bess. I'm coming to Miami. Can you pick me up at the airport? That's program working. The, uh, the action continues. The sponsorship. When Phil died, I went to another man who's here tonight, and he took me on. Told me to get a backup sponsor, so I had plenty of coverage because he felt like I needed it. And he and, and this man, Buck, in Miami have been sponsoring me, this iron worker type. And I got a letter about sponsorship not too long ago, and I th I'd like to share it with you, and then I'll close. Wayne, here are some thoughts on sponsor qualities. This is from a man I deeply respect in the program. Number one, three years or more in AA. Number two, a life in addition to AA. Number three, a sense of humor. Number four, a happy sobriety. Number five, on the scene and available both in person and on the phone. Number six, sufficient time available for sponsoring. Number seven, flexible, not dogmatic. Number eight, a reader of AA literature. Number nine, a person with minimal anger. Number 10, compassionate but capable of tough love. And number 11, and preferably one who loves our traditions. And I feel blessed that I do have sponsors that are just about exactly what Roy is talking about in that letter. I pray to God that someday I can achieve some of those things because I've got the ones that I'm sponsoring. That's the path. I've got these fellows here leading me, and then I've got some other ones behind me that I'm leading. Keeps me on the path. Some other things keep me on the path are 10, 11, and 12. Daily inventory and promptly admitting when I'm wrong. I try not to let the day end without saying I'm sorry. 
And 11, reading those little books in the morning, 24 hours, day by day, one day at a time, saying my prayers, simple prayers, especially the 11th step prayer, to do it his way, not my way. Had enough of that. And on page 89, it tells me exactly what I've got to do, wrapping it up. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics, newcomers especially. Last Passover, I uh, sat up in my little office and I knew we were going to have a Seder, but I kind of had my own little Seder there. I took out the Jewish prayer book, the Haggadah, I read through it. It was the first time I've ever done that as an adult. And I came to the end of it, and there's a song in there that we always sing called Dayenu, which in Hebrew means it would have been enough. Literally, it means it would have been enough. And it goes that if God had taken the Jews out of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery, it would have been enough. If God had Dayenu, if it had, he had parted the Red Sea, and gotten them across, Dainu, it would have been enough. If he had taken across the Sinai Desert and delivered them, Dainu would have been enough. And if he had given them the Bible and the Ten Commandments, it would have been enough. Made them the chosen people, it would have been enough. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, that's for me. And I just made a little list of things that I'd like to share with you. Dainu, if God had taken away the fear, the terror, that was my life before I came into this program. Just that alone would have been enough. If God had taken away Dainu, just the fear, and given me back Jackie, secure and happy, that would have been enough. Dainu, if God had taken away all those things from me except the fear, he gave it, took it away, gave me back Jackie, and then gave me my children. That would have been enough. Dainu, if God had given me back my brother and my relationship with him, that would have been enough. My mother and my father, that would have been enough. My whole family have me back now. I developed coronary disease, severe angina, had a double angioplasty. He saved me through that. Dainu, that would have been enough. Had a melanoma, wide excision. Removed it. Six-year cure. That would have been enough. He made me chief of cardiology at the hospital where I was barred. Big practice now. Enormous. Can't keep up. That would have surely been enough. Kleptomaniac. Dainu. He, he made me treasurer of my home group in AA. <laughs> That's real faith. And this year he made me room chairman of that same home group. And last year he made me secretary of the South Florida Medical Professionals Group. I knew that would have been enough. But then on top of all these things, he gave me this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. You know, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. This is a room full of miracles. Wayne, 
was my kind of drug addict. I know what it is to be in a hospital for three weeks. But I wasn't as well cared for, I, I don't think, as Wayne was down in Miami. Because in this hospital on Long Island, when I was coming off all that stuff, they still have me there as a paranoid schizophrenic. That's hard on getting standard rate life insurance. But this fellow at Mutual New York said, well, everything else seems okay. So I did get that. You know, as it says in the book, uh, where Bill writes that our lives are full of courageous, loyal women who stick with us through all kinds of sickness and selfishness and callousness on our part. And um, as I've been blessed with Hazel, uh, Wayne was blessed with Jackie. Jackie. Hi, hi everybody. Um, my name is Jackie. I'm a little nervous. I don't make my living <laughs> I don't make my living doing public speaking. Um, it's so nice to see our friends from Florida here. Thank you for sitting up in front. Um, well, I guess I should start with that I'm a member of Al-Anon. I'm an, a member of Open AA. I'm a member of IDAA. We have meetings in our homes every two weeks. And I qualify for adult children of alcoholics. I don't know about you, but when I was thrown my inner tube and I felt I was drowning, I didn't check the initials to see which one I should grab. <laughs> and I still don't. If I hear something good, I use it. And... Uh, I'm probably plagiarizing a little bit tonight, some of my stuff. But I've heard such good things over the last four years that um, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm up here. Hazel must have uh, <laughs> heard one of my one-liners or something. Um, my drugs of choice when I came in the program were Mylanta, Gaviscon, um, Tagamet, Zantax, and I hadn't had any of those now in four years, but today I did have a half a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> well, I, ha I thought I had a pretty normal life, and I'll tell you a little bit about it, and you can see if you can identify. Um, I was born to two very young adults. I think they were under 20 years old. And before I was 10 months old, my parents were divorced, and my father was diagnosed as having a terminal illness, and he would be dead within about 10 years. My father, who was terminally ill, young man, like I say, maybe 20 years old, took me, and we went to live with his mother 
and his father. My grandparents were just from the old country, were Hungarian, and they lived in a very, very ethnic neighborhood in Chicago. And um, I grew up speaking Hungarian. And um, 